Organissima New York. Your exotic skin, hair and beauty source and your one-stop shop for all your natural and organic skin and hair care. Featuring authentic organic Moroccan oil and prickly pear seed oil and much more. Bringing you only the best straight from the source and proudly produced in the USA. So what are you waiting for? Shop today at www.arganissima.com. Arganissima, New York. Your beauty is our duty. Arganissima. Welcome back to the iHealth channel and iHealth radio, Tarek NH here uh, with yet another special guest. And uh, this time from, I think, British Columbia, Canada, right? The other yeah, side, uh, it's, still early, it's still early out there. <laughs> yeah, it's really <laughs> <early> cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So I have with me Dr. Uh, Paula Lake, and she's a psychologist and her expertise pretty much in uh, post-trauma, post-trauma you know, issues, military, and otherwise. And, uh, you know, part of health, obviously, it's just for physical, mental, and psychology is a big deal. And uh, we've had a very uh, tough year, you know, and it's still going. <laughs> and uh, uh, we, we've we actually brought to you guys in the previous show a little bit of the basics of psychology and, and psychoanalysis with a different guest. Today, we're going to focus a little bit with Dr. Lake on the concept of trauma, and how, you know, it happens, what the causes, what happens to the folks, you know, why, you know, they can sometimes cope with it, some do, some don't. And then, you know, in the environment that we live in, what's causing it as much and how we can maybe prevent it or maybe, you know, some tools. Now also Dr. Lake has her own show, <laughs> the Dr. Lake show and podcast. And so please check it out, you know, uh, and, and listen to her uh, feed as well as her information. Uh, so, so, with that little introduction, I'm going to, you know, give back to Dr. Lake to tell us a little bit about you and your practice and your background, and then we'll we'll start getting into the COVID business. Sure. Well, I've been I've been in practice for quite a, a few years, and I, I it's kind of morphed over the course of the years. Um, I've definitely specialized in trauma. Uh, you know, I work with the public, um, but I also work with I, I do a lot of work right now with RCMP officers here policing in in uh, in Canada, primarily in British Columbia, um, and as well as veterans. So it really has been moving progressively more towards any kind of trauma. It can be childhood trauma, but of course, with policing, a lot of it is um, the traumas they encounter through the course of their work and and you know it has really a lot of impact on people and i think trauma is the one thing that it is when it really at the more severe levels is really a big challenge for people to get past that experience of traumatic uh, the traumatic impact and so that has been a big part of my focus i probably through the course of my education my career it was always about um overcoming adversity and I think in life, we, we can't avoid adversity. And, you know, this experience with COVID has been a really prime example because, you know, people's life uh, moved from a place of maybe of more certainty and now into uh, fear. And, and when we are in a fear state, it really impacts and it can bleed into all areas of our life. So that has been my passion. Uh, right from the get-go, I actually had a local radio show here that I hosted for a period of time. And that one was all about resiliency. And I, I interviewed a number of authors uh, at that time. And it was because that's been my fascination is, is not about can we, um, we will all at one point or another in our lives have something that we have to encounter. So it's how do we build that sense of resilience internally within us? Um, and how do we not let the past experiences shape the rest of our lives and because we change as we go through experiences mm -hmm. we start to change and I'm always interested in 
how you were before trauma and what how it changes you. It literally changes the way you view the world, the way you respond to, to life. And, and I've seen people's life go from being full and present to uh, much more enclosed and, and, and uh, uh, sort of avoidant of the world. And, and so how do you get back to where you were before trauma? And, and that is a really big question. I don't know if I have all the answers to that, but I know that it's important that we address that because it's just something we can't avoid in life. And we, we need to build those tools and skills to be able to, to deal with that. So doctor, I have a few questions and we'll get to a few of them yeah. in the next. But so I everybody knows the word trauma. Right. So so I think I think it would be ideal if we can define a little bit what trauma means and what levels. Because you know, there's this physical trauma, there's mental trauma, but like what is it exactly? I mean, you know, how how do you identify that you're really being traumatized? You know, and, and maybe that's just the clarity that people may need about maybe they, they go into it, they don't even know. Uh, is that even a possibility? Um, I, I, I do have my own way, and I think it's been sort of mirrored in, in my practice about what trauma is. Um, you know, they've actually differentiated, they called it big T, little T. I don't know if you've ever heard that. No, that's exactly um, what... <laughs> big T, big T is um, those major, everyone thinks of trauma, you know, you're seeing death, your, your life, you know, is threatened and that would be in the big T category when I work with RCMP officers and their lives are at risk, or we've had a traumatic experience, a break-in, or our lives were threatened, or we've witnessed something that felt very threatening to our integrity. That would be the larger uh, type of traumas that um, can have be very sudden, unexpected, immediate, and those can have really profound effects on people on a very deep level. And I would say at a primary level, their feeling of safety in the world gets negatively impacted. So that their lives start to get shaped to prevent themselves from having to go through further adversity. And in doing that, they may curtail certain aspects of their life that are important. For example, when I'm working with RC, an RCMP officer, and if he's gone through a lot of major traumatic exposure through the course of his career, what will happen is the most simple activities that maybe you and I go and we go shopping and grocery shopping, and it's not a big deal for us, for them going in a public environment where there's lots of people becomes a highly stressful experience. And that, that they, they go through a um, heightened arousal, they struggle to do the very basic things that you and I take for granted on a normal day-to-day -day basis. So those are the more profound kinds of traumatic impact or, or childhood sexual abuse, where uh, you know I've worked with some individuals that have had long-term childhood abuse. And as they have grown into adults, they still live their lives as if there's threat around the corner that they're going to get hurt again. And that's a real compromised way of living. And, you know, when we look at the little T events, it might be uh, maybe a, not as much a life-threatening type of incident, but one that still has a profound change, uh, whether someone might have been bullied or they had maybe a certain number of experiences of abandonment that they they feel they can't trust in relationship anymore. And as a consequence, they don't put themselves out there anymore. They don't take risks or they get in a hyper fearful vigilant state. So, you know, I, I think we um, underestimate the impact of some experiences. They don't always have to be life-threatening, but they can still shape your life in a negative direction. And I, I like to think that we um, in the absence of any trauma, we, we still take risks in life, we still put ourselves out there, but it almost creates a, a, a state where uh, your life ends up being shaped by trying not to have danger and an overestimation of the types of risk. Um, you know, an example would be, um, you know, I've, I've worked with some people that have had maybe some bullying in their childhood, um, they they've feel a lot of shame and as a consequence, they won't look for jobs. 
they won't uh, go out there to meet you people. So suddenly your life, the possibilities in your life seem to diminish once you've gone through these experiences and you don't put yourself out there anymore because you play to play safe and keep yourself safe. It's an overestimation of danger. And that's the hardest thing I find when I'm working with the more severe end of trauma is how do you create it so that they can feel safe again in the world and that they are able to put themselves in, in, in what would be otherwise a normal situation, whether it's shopping or going out and meeting people and not live in this state of fear or anxiety that, you know, if you, if you put yourself out there, something bad is going to happen. So quick question. Well, I want to just take a quick pause since we talked about police and policing and, and uh, just a thank you to all the men and women in uniform, of course, you know, all nations and all around the world for all the good work they do. And I, I know there are, there have been some negative vibes, you know, in different scenarios over the, the, some of the events in the world, but, but overall, you know, all men and women out there that are, you know, really risky lives day in, day out. I mean, it's not easy. And, you know, we fear for our lives without even having to volunteer ourselves into it. But some of these folks go out there on their own and just basically, you know, they know that there's a risk and their yeah. risk is much higher than most of us would experience. Absolutely. Think. And that, that's a big, so again, from, from our, you know, show here, as well as on behalf of Dr. Lake, thank you for yeah. all the good work and great work you do. Uh, so, so one of the transitions I want to go over is uh, PTSD, right? Yes. So, so is that the ultimate big, you know, uh, you know, you know, uh, main diagnosis? Uh, I would probably say, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, uh, one thing I really like to differentiate with people though, is you can be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, um, you know, and, and suffer significant symptoms. I, I don't know, uh, you know, how much you've talked about this in your, in your, in your work, but, um, you know, the, the hallmarks of PTSD are having intrusive symptoms that, you know, memories of past traumas that you do not want to have that keep intruding. A lot of physiological symptoms of arousal, very difficulty bringing that arousal level down. Um, a tendency to try and avoid anything that will bring you back into that memory so you know they might not walk walk down a certain street because it reminds them of their trauma so their life gets shaped around it but you know i would say to people that you do not have to be diagnosed with ptsd in order to i can certainly say some people have trauma and they might not fully meet that criteria for ptsd so you can still have some symptoms that are disturbing enough that I think need to be addressed, um, but they might not meet that full spectrum of PTSD. Most of my practice with, with RCMP officers, they do meet that criteria, but I, I can meet the public with perhaps um, interpersonal traumas where they've had some abandonment. Um, it's really shaped their ability to cultivate relationships or trusting relationships they might not still meet that criteria. So, um, you know, I, I don't really get fixated on that diagnosis, although often it ends up being part of what I'm dealing with. Yeah. So just, just a, a question. Some people may say, okay, well, military uh, personnel, they actually engage in, in, in more troublesome areas with a lot more death and, and, and destruction and their level may be a little different from, for example, a local police force. Uh, not that it makes a difference. I mean, ultimately the danger is, is as real. And, you know, so, so, but some folks maybe, well, you know, well, you can't compare the two, you know, we're out there with bombs and, you know, all crazy stuff going on. Uh, whereas the other ones aren't comfortably patrolling. And, you know, uh, is there anything that we can tell folks about is, first of all, is there a difference? Cause you know, in terms of the way the mind works, um, that's the first part of it. Is there anything we can say specifically to that point? You mean in terms of how they develop the symptoms or? Well, I mean, so, so one yeah. is like, you know, basically it's a bigger event that they experience with multiple, you know, uh, bodies and, you know, things that they can see that yeah. are completely can't forget. I mean, I, 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 I give you an example. I was a yeah. long time ago, I saw just an accident and I can still visualize that accident from my eyes every time yeah. I think about it. 
uh, and, and it was literally like, wow, you know, so, so that's just a personal experience. But when someone sees that level of, of crazy, I mean, it's the impact is probably high, but does that equate to someone that is local, for example, and maybe the experience is much less, you know, uh, crazy? That's a really good question. Um, when I, you know, when, when often if I'm working with military, they will have gone on tour. So it's a, it's sometimes they might've had one tour and they might've had several tours in the course of their career. Um, and it's an intensive exposure to um, life-threatening situation. Some of them have been in Afghanistan. Some of them have been in Bosnia. Um, they've seen some horrible things. Exactly. They may or may not have been injured, but it was enough sometimes to see a lot of death and see the, these, um, or perhaps even play a role in those deaths. And, sure. um, and, you know, when I'm dealing with, for example, RCMP officers compared to veterans, it's not always that they run into that short intensified period of, of repeated exposure to trauma but it's, it's a repetition of exposure over the course of 20 years or 15 years or 10 years. And it, so sometimes what I've noticed is there's a cumulative impact that happens and not after the first death they witnessed. And what's interesting, um, this is often what I'll hear from officers. They may have witnessed um, hundreds of dead bodies and been exposed to hundreds of situations but it might be that one incident after 10 or 15 years of work that suddenly gets to them. And they may even go, I don't understand how I could have seen all these bodies and dealt with all of these situations. Why now, why this death? And I, I think what we're really looking at is there is a bit of a cumulative impact that over the years, I don't think trauma happens in isolation. And um, so military, you know, if I was to look at military and RCMP right now in Canada, they did a major study, uh, the Canadian uh, Mental Health Association uh, for Mental Health uh, did a major study and they looked at RCMP officers. RCMP officers, um, compared to the normal population, their rates of trauma are higher. So their rates of mental health disorders are higher. Um, and so I think when you look at the context of an individual that develops PTSD, whether they're military, whether they're PTSD, there are some predictors to why they might develop the symptoms. And um, if you look at the life of an RCMP officer, police officer, for example, um, you know, they're often overworked. They're on, a, they're on a sleep schedule that taxes them. When they're doing shift work on and off, their body, they get mentally and physically fatigued. So our resources for managing adversity diminishes as our well-being diminishes. So if you're not actually engaged in healthy day-to-day -day lifestyle patterns, enough sleep, um, overall, it, it's as if our resilience starts to weaken over time. So I do think there's a cumulative impact for police officers. It's a slightly different phenomenon for military because they will have a three month or six month exposure and then it might die down for a number of years. Um, so I, I still see a lot of police officers struggling with similar symptoms to that of military. Um, and another precursor often for the development of trauma is um, are, are ones who've had previous trauma. So if there's been trauma in your childhood or you went through a lot of adversity, um, you know, there's a higher likelihood for anybody if you've already had a childhood experience of trauma, it kind of creates more vulnerability in your, in your later years as an adult to, um, to re-experience some of those symptoms of trauma. Uh, so what we're doing sometimes, even though I'm dealing with what they went through, through the course of their career, it's not uncommon for me to also end up traveling back into their childhood and kind of remedying some of the things that they didn't really get those skills we're supposed to get in our childhood that build our resilience. Um, they end up having to work on that sometimes even after they've developed a trauma later on in their, in their career.
that I mean, that's got to be some interesting when you have to deep dive and to the root causes that, that may have been built in for over the, the their life. And uh, certainly, to your point, there's events that may trigger uh, episodes or or, or basically absolutely. spikes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, now, someone could really ask about you know the type of trauma. So we talked about maybe being in a dangerous situation and things like that. But it could be just observing something that is wrong or like yeah. just dealing with social problems. I mean, it could be yeah. as simple. I mean, if you're always getting into domestic calls or bullying situations, and you have to constantly see that maybe that has to have some sort of an impact uh, that you bring back to your family and, and to your you know surrounding the yes. environment. So the impact that that trauma has in the your personal environment, yeah. it, it, it colors the rest of your relationships. It truly does. I mean, that's why it's so important for us to address the trauma itself and and some of the things I I see happening to people who've gone through trauma is it affects their relationships at home. Um, they're less present. Um, it's much more difficult for them to uh, be patient. Uh, irritability tends to increase. Um, you know, I've had some officers, for example, otherwise very easygoing, you know, kind and pleasant individuals find themselves having outbursts in their home that is out of their character. So the reason it becomes so troubling with for them is, isn't, you know, you have the trauma itself, but it's how it starts to affect your coping and life. Um, substance abuse is, you know, it could be uh, using anything they can use to help them calm that intensity of their emotion. And so we're always trying to help them develop tools for coping that doesn't end up being destructive to the rest of their lives. And that's what's so scary about it for them is because it's not just the fact that they have this original trauma, it's that they see their world unraveling and, and, and it triggers a lot of fears that they're not gonna be able to resume the kind of life that they had or that they're gonna even destroy their relationships um, find themselves alone, perhaps maybe even in their career, it will have a negative. And that's a big, big fear because I work with some senior officers. I work with ones that are, are new in their career. And there's um, this implicit fear they develop that if I can't get a handle over what I'm experiencing, um, I might actually not be able to do my job anymore. I might not be able to carry a relationship anymore or my partner might leave me because I'm not, I'm no longer the person I was. And they don't recognize themselves anymore. And they sometimes a big thing I deal with when they're dealing with trauma is their self-concept. There's, because, you know, I mean, if you might imagine uh, for police officers and military, they're still a military, militaristic-based sure. um, organizations, um, a lot of what they learned in their career was to be strong, uh, pull up their socks, tough it out. Um, and I think they enter into their career with that mentality. And once they start recognizing, hey, you know, that's not working. And as much as I came into my profession, it can work up to a certain point where just pulling up your socks isn't enough anymore. And sometimes they come to me very reluctantly and very cautiously because one of the things people fear is that if they go to see a psychologist that they'll become blubbering softies and they won't be able to go out there and do their jobs anymore. And so, you know, I have to kind of re-educate them and let them know that absolutely not, that's not what we do. Um, it's actually to strengthen their resilience, help them deal with adversity and make sure that it's not gonna negatively impact their career. So that's a big educational component for them that they have to learn a little bit of normalization of, of just the fact that it's pretty normal when you see things that most of us don't see and from our day-to-day -day lives that you're gonna have a reaction. And, um, and then they, they get humbled. It's a humbling experience even when you've been worked your way up to a sergeant position to suddenly go, well, I thought I was invincible. And now I'm realizing I actually have to deal with this stuff, even though I really don't want to. Um, that's a lot of the process I work with them is, is educating them and, and helping them feel 
um, that they might have to deal with some of this stuff, but in the end, uh, it's gonna help them be stronger and it takes some time to get them to that point of, of trusting that process, right? Now, are these cases for the most part being assigned type of things, like maybe like departmental, you know, uh, uh, position that they tell, okay, you're a sergeant, you've been through this, you need to see somebody special for to treat, you know, whatever, or this is, because there's the stigma, right? I mean, yes. if, if I have to volunteer myself just to go in and maybe see you, I would have to think about everybody and what they're going to think, and I want to probably yes. want it to be a secret. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. so how does that work in that environment? That can definitely, that happens where there's a referral and, and there's a concern for a particular police officer. Um, right now, there's been a lot of work at destigmatizing trauma. Um, and there's a lot more education actually since the national study that has been uh, produced in Canada, there has been a lot more incentives to educate police officers, give them resources, um, help them uh, normalize the need to talk about it. We do have critical incident stress debriefings. So, you know, as, an, as the incidences surface, they will enlist a psychologist to come in and let's talk and educate. Um, there's still, in my opinion, a long ways to go on destigmatizing it. Um, but it is for the newer generation, they are improving in the educational front. And so what I'm finding now uh, compared to when I first started years back is I do have more of them willing to come in even in the beginning of their career. And they're saying to me, I'm, I'm ready to work on building my resilience and so that I don't end up suffering uh, from trauma. But that I don't think that would have happened years ago. And so they, they I do get more self-referrals the other one would be, um, you know, often it's been once they end up experiencing symptoms. So um, never in the beginning of their symptoms, often when they're finding they've tried to just pull up their socks and continue, and they come to me after they go, in spite of my efforts, I've been unable to master it. But it is changing, and I think I'm really hopeful that that will change for them, that they'll be able to um, uh, just take that, you know, I think as a preventative, it's just a good practice for people to learn tools um, for their own well-being over the long run. You know, I, I think another change that's happening in these organizations now is um, historically it was very much, there's a lot of pressure right now, the capacity for police officers, for example, to um, do a lot of overtime. Historically, they did tons of overtime. Their, their life was really off balance. Now there's more of an attitude of, okay, it's okay for me to do some self-care because that is really important for preventing trauma is that they get the rest they need, that they take care and they listen to their bodies. Whereas historically, I think they literally cut off any internal um, sort of a, a awareness that they were even struggling with something. And, and, you know, and that's when problems tend to surface. Now they're actually paying more attention. I still think there is a ways to go because, you know, I remember one uh, quote that I heard, it was, you know, we can change even a law or we can change a principle, but it takes a long time to change a mindset. And, and that was such a, uh, ingrained um, uh, perspective for them to to be the tough people that weren't touched by anything. So I think it's it, we still got a long ways to go for educating and helping them uh, feel more comfortable with the idea that it's not a, it's not a sign of weakness. Um, doesn't mean they can't do the work. And if anything, I want them to know that it's the opposite to that, that they're actually going to be stronger because of it, because of that time that they take for themselves. Now, if you don't want me to ask, so the folks that you've helped, uh, do you, do you see, I mean, years go by, uh, do you see like, uh, do you even come across them in real life and, and maybe like, you know, see that the change that happened based on the impact and, and what you've done with them? Uh, are there any any of them that come back to you and say, hey, listen, uh, you changed my life? Yeah. <laughs> yes, there are. All yes, right. there are. Um, you know, it's, if I'm going to classify it, uh, you know, I think 
there are some individuals who when the thicker their trauma base, like the, the more, if they've been riddled with trauma from the time they were young and they went through a lot of adversity and the more um, they continued perhaps on an unhealthy form of coping, whether it's alcohol or over the course of years, um, those take longer. And I, and I will work with some that have, um, you know, more, uh, more challenges in overcoming the full scope of the trauma. We, we, uh, for example, there's a, a, one of the symptoms that's common is hypervigilance, which means they can't relax. They're constantly looking for signs of danger. That's, that's a huge one with police officers. So even if we may help them with all the other symptoms, they have these residual symptoms that, you know, I can't say that they all just disappear. There's, there might be some residual things they have to learn to cope with. But for those that have had more simple trauma, uh, and what I mean by that is they haven't had the full scope of, of trauma from the time they were children, um, that it's, it's really been confined to one or two events. Those, they can make progress fairly quickly. And it, you know, when they have had, they come into the forest with those resources in hand, like support um, relationships, uh, a greater balance. They started on the right footing from when they were young. Those are the ones I'm more likely to see them come and say, you know, that was amazing. I'm, I'm, I'm in a way better place. So absolutely it can happen. Um, I would just say that it really depends on the nature and severity and length of traumas that they've been through that will make a difference on how quickly they can proceed and, 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 and get better. So I find it very intriguing or interesting that mm -hmm. you've had cases of law enforcement agents or, or, or officers who have potentially had some, some level of trauma when they were younger. Yeah. And I'm, I know for a fact that, you know, most of the agencies out there, all law enforcement, you have to go through some scrutiny before you get in. And part of it is psyche, you know, evaluation, they do all those pre-screens. How does that, you know, not make it, you know, how does that, you know, uh, get not noticed at that stage? And it takes, you know, a real event, you know, once they're in the career path, impact them. I don't know if, if you know, I don't want to go into the deep secrets here because that's a pretty technical question. But, yeah. but you know, if it happens, I mean, I, certainly it's happening. You know, there is there is a, a filter, a criteria where before you get into, you know, there is a, enough scrutiny. A screening uh, process? Yeah, a screening process. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, most officers are screened before they go in. They do a fairly thorough assessment. Uh, we might administer the MMPI and they go through a process of interviewing. And, um, uh, you know, that's a really good question. I mean, what we're really looking at is um, through the screening process, are there any major psychiatric conditions that we see them uh, come in with? I mean, like any screening process, people might, may or may not downplay certain traumatic experiences they've had. But I think the other piece is that um, even if they, you know, it's such an optimistic time when they're entering the police force. Um, sometimes if they've had trauma, uh, it's, it's their mission to want to be out there and help people. And they go into it with a really uh, a positive intent to really change the world and maybe even uh, fix some of the problems that they ran into when they went when they were younger. And so when we're doing that testing, it, it's at a, a stage in their career or when they're where they're very hopeful and that place of optimism um, is great. But they may, they may even underestimate it as might even a psychologist who's doing that testing, whether they absolutely go into details of what they went through or not is another story. Sure. But I do. Right? <laughs> yeah, but even if they're feeling okay, and they've had previous trauma, we can actually think we're fine um, until we encounter those situations. Um, there are some officers that I know of that just launched into their career they encountered a couple of incidents and then they immediately pulled themselves out of the police force because it was just wow. too much for them right at the outset. Um, others that just are able to use that pull up your sock approach, um, it can last them up to a certain period, right? Um, I do think it's really important 
you know, if they've had previous trauma, uh, that if they've put themselves in a really positive situation, let's say they're in good supportive relationships, they found some solidity and built some resources, it's not a definitive that they're going to experience trauma. It just, um, it's almost like a vulnerability point. It, you know, there's no guarantee someone's going to experience trauma because they had it in their childhood. Statistically, it's just been linked as a greater risk factor. And so if you were to collectively look at what are all these risk factors, you know, lack of self-care, uh, poor social resources in your life, uh, past childhood trauma. And if you collect those risk factors all together, and if they, the, the higher those numbers are, um, the more at risk they're going to be. And so we can't exclude any, everyone who's gone through some experience in their childhood. And ultimately, it depends on how they end up coping through the course of their career. So just a, a question about diversity. Does the background of person, whether it's the economic, you know, socioeconomics or, you know, culture, religion has an impact on how they deal with trauma in terms of coping and also just be, like making it happen through it? Um, that's a really good question. Uh, you know, I, you know, if there's any uh, link that when we look at trauma, we look what are maybe some precursors to trauma. I don't know that they've associated it so much with you know, in this cultural background, you're higher likely, greater likelihood. But what they have looked at is um, particular mindset that a person may possess prior to encountering traumatic situations. For example, one common thing that I see is um, for those that have been maybe historically had had a greater tendency to blame themselves for failures, uh, ones that have had a mindset to uh, engage in what we call maladaptive thinking styles. So individuals who look at themselves and blame themselves for anything that goes wrong, or they tend to overgeneralize when something bad happens. They look at the world as if it's, it's in a more generic negative way. So it's those, those thinking patterns. It might be associated with culture. I mean, I'm an Italian culture. Italians feel guilt all the time. So I don't, so I think there are certain mindsets that we can derive from a culture. I don't know that we've directly linked it to that culture, but we've certainly looked at mindset and mindset is a, is, is a, a contributor and, and that can play into how someone deals with life. Like I'll often, look at what was your thinking style and what was your thinking style I, I deal with for example some veterans and and one of the big issues that they might have is even guilt um you know when you're in a war situation and you know, there's a lot of coulda shoulda would have you know and and if they some people can make better peace with the fact that they were in a difficult situation and under that circumstance they did the best that they could. Um, while others walk out of the same scenario with a, a, a already a tendency to um, feel the weight of responsibility that they should have somehow accomplished things that they could not have feasibly done. Um, or even in the course of their role, you know, I know some that have had to engage in difficult you know, um, difficult activities that might include killing if that's what it included. And they, they wear that and it's, it's, they carry guilt and guilt is a really challenging thing for someone to knock. And, and I, I can't honestly speak to what it's like to ever have to kill somebody. Um, I don't carry that burden, um, but I do think it's one of the more challenging burdens that people have to carry is, feeling responsible for the life of other human beings. Well, is it more because, you know, because I mean, there's two two levels, right? I mean, there's self-defense. If you're really just, you know, in a case or situation, somebody, it's either you or them uh, yeah. in the context of war and or policing. But then you have the context was like, well, did I do the right thing or because I was given orders? I mean, because I think there's a difference between someone that's engaged in, in person and someone, for example, Huge. from the back end. Uh, so so it's got to have an impact. 
Um, it has. In fact, I've, I've certainly worked with some uh, military that one of the biggest struggles they had is they were following orders. Um, they were doing what they were mandated to do. And in spite of the fact that that was a mandated task that they were enlisted with, there's that internal um, uh, self-doubt, right? Where they, they think if, if I didn't do that, this would never have happened. And the thing that's interesting when we go through those kinds of traumas is they keep looping the same question over and over. And they're not, a, it's harder to, uh, as much as you might try to reassure someone and you say, you know, listen, you did what you were told to do, it's under that circumstances, it's really hard for them to hold on to that and be, without feeling and carrying some kind of responsibility that they should have done something else. And that can take years actually to help them make peace with themselves, um, recognize that under the circumstances they may not have been able to do anything different. Um, you know, I think it's one thing that any of us who have not been there, and that's why I have great respect for them because I'm not going to be the person to tell them that they shouldn't feel a certain way. I can't imagine what it would be like to have played a role in someone else's demise. Um, and that's a burden, fortunately, that most of us don't have to carry. But I certainly don't think that they deserve to carry that burden for the rest of their lives. Uh, I think it's a um, walk a mile in my shoes and then maybe we could know what that's like. And I, and I hope that they can um, get past those experiences without that kind of burden because it's I think it's a heavy burden to carry for many it is and you know it's it's funny because most of us in the, the normal world we would not we we may judge people like you know we may judge those folks like you know totally. and, and but if we were to be put in their shoes as you stated you know yeah. what was the and it's funny because I use that in training uh, you know, and I, I, I watch a lot of like strategy movies, war movies, also like, you know, um, disaster movies. And yeah. I always, in, I use those in training mode and then you ask the question, well, which character would you have done? What would have been your reaction in this case? Would you have been character one, uh, you know, maybe uh, choosing a peace way or maybe the character two that actually just, you know, shoot first, ask questions later. So, oh. so it, is, it is very difficult oh. to really, and you don't know because unless you're in it, that is a thing. And I think a lot of them might actually end up um, being surprised by their own reaction. I mean, you know, we can conjecture all we want about how we're going to handle those situations. Exactly. One thing I do know is um, when we are physiological, physiologically aroused in the, those moments of, of traumatic experiences, um, I, if you understand what happens to the brain, uh, when we are in a fight or flight state, when we're in a state where our lives really? are threatened, actually our brain is compromised in that particular moment and we are not thinking. Um, you know, if you actually look at the brain of a traumatized individual, uh, you know, there's a lot of activity happening there. And they have a term called emotional hijacking, which refers to uh, when we are in these altered states, if you actually look at the brain this part of the brain that is the one that has us plan and think ahead and it's very methodical and strategic basically shuts down and the the the, the blood um, actually gets constricted the blood vessels in the brain and there's less brain activity in this frontal lobe which is why for example even if we're looking at road rage um, right. People do things that they would not otherwise do. It's, it's the, when we are in these states is as if half of our brain is shut down. And that's why I think it's so hard for people to be able to anticipate what they're going to do in those situations, unless they've actually been there. And, um, you know, we're, we're operating with half of our brain functioning, basically. And, and I think that's why it's so hard for them to come to terms with the fact that you know, when, they, when they're in those types of situations, they couldn't think as clearly as they might have otherwise. It's so easy when we're out of it to say what we should have done. Um, and that's, that's half the battle for them is to, to come to terms with that.
So, I mean, listen, I, we could talk about this for, for a lot of time. I mean, we started the conversation Absolutely. about we're going, we want to go over COVID stuff, but, yes. but it just, it was so intriguing. Like, you know, when you mentioned it, it's just, there's, there's all questions that people might have or Huge. don't even understand. I, I mean, I, I'm yeah. sure it is, it's a deep dive topic and we can spend hours. We oh, probably wouldn't have to give it justice, right? I'll do it justice to it. Absolutely. So, so no, we'll, we'll, we'll just go right segue into the, the current scenario that we live in yes. for the last year and it's still ongoing so COVID, mm -hmm. uh it's yeah. it's kind of came in you know from somewhere <laughs> it happened and, and and now the world has to deal with it and uh a lot of folks you know throughout the year either through the last year they either did good or did bad <laughs> yeah. in terms of how they they manage their their, their resilience you yeah. know in a way you know some people just took the best of it and some people but again, not everybody experienced it the same way. Some people had loss in the family or even, yeah. you know, themselves had, you know, traumatic experience going through the hospital. Uh, in the beginning, it was scary. People are still scared. I mean, just as an example, I was with my mom at a doctor's today. And uh, there was an older gentleman that was just doing a stress test and came out and then uh, he needed to eat. So he was just snacking. So he took his mask off. And then someone walked in. She made a yeah. big deal scene because she was traumatized about him being without a mask. And it, it was just like an interesting scenario because the guy just came up with, with you know, from tests that he needed to get some some food in him because he was fasting all morning. And here comes a lady that is completely like off and she went into attention like, well, you shouldn't be doing that. It's you know, risking our life. So yeah. I was watching that. It was an interesting, you know, exchange yeah. of, of, of <laughs> opinions in there. So yeah. it's been rough. So So if you can just guide us over like uh, some of the things that you've seen over the last year, and you know and maybe some suggestions of people how they can actually really move away from 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 that and maybe cope with it better uh yeah. in light of all the resources that we're looking at in, in in the future months absolutely i mean i i you know one of the things i do know is that uncertainty when you know we we all like to live in a in a world where we can predict our future and know what's ahead of us and if you look at when we are in a place of certainty um, we feel more relaxed. And it, this is not unlike um, the trauma that I was talking about before. Something like COVID um, is triggering, again, that people's fears and their sense of uncertainty. I mean, if you put aside job uncertainty, then you uh, look at uncertainty about your own well-being or that of your family. It's, it's a very natural um, response for people to have heightened anxiety. And I don't the last thing I would ever want to do is pathologize the fact that um, uncertainty is a very um, provocative situation for people and it will inevitably result very often in anxiety. And because I deal with lots of different types of uncertainty and COVID just happens to be one of them. It could be a divorce. It could be a loss of a job. And as soon as people uh, don't have that control anymore over their lives, um, there is a very natural response to go into a heightened state of stress and, and worry about it. And if someone has, you know, if you, much like I was talking about before, there, there's uh, often a correlation that people who didn't cope with adversity well in the past might also have perhaps a little bit more difficulty coping with this type of adversity because again, it brings up um, safety issues, um, you know, and when we come, that's, I think, why you see a lot more volatility. If you look in the, I remember seeing some uh, clips on TV of people in supermarkets yelling oh my at God. each other, and, you know, <laughs> and because when we are in fear states, it actually, we go back to this brain thing happening again. Um, we're no longer grounded. We, we, we fear our, our safety. We go into fight or flight. That is exactly what I think happens when we're looking at the volatility that happens in people. There, that has been a common uh, thing that you'll experience. Um, so I think in order for, it, it's, it's the ultimate test for people to learn um, how to cope with uncertainty um, very often, one of the things that we will suggest when people's lives have been sort of in upheaval or even job changes or working from home or having to adjust with children, 
um, that when there's a lot of change and, and fears that are happening, really important for people to have some anchoring type of activities in their life, not to completely change their lives, develop some kind of grounding rituals from day to day that are um, uh, have some kind of stability because when all your whole life changes and everything feels uncertain, those are what we anchor ourselves in. And it could be, um, you know, time that you take to go for that walk, um, spend time in nature and unplug and to do that on a regular daily basis. So when we have a lot of uncertainty, anchor yourself in some of the things that you know have been calming and good for yourself and to commit to those so that your whole world isn't turned upside down. And I, I think because of the amount of adjustment people have had to do, um, it's easy for, that's the first thing people will start to let go of. They'll, they'll start to um, completely put their needs aside and they go into this survival mode. And, and those anchoring things are really, really important. I think uh, nature, exercise, eating well, making sure you're sleeping, you know, I, and, and finding a support system um, in order to navigate this. And what you really want to do is help them get out of that frontal lobe, um, you know, uh, loss of function. You want to get them back. You know, one thing I say is, you know, we want to put your head brain back online and, <laughs> I and like that. you know, uh, I, I actually really believe in a lot of the meditations that are out there right now to help people get out of their head um, because no amount of rumination and worry actually helps people. It actually will make things worse. Um, so those are some of the things I think are important. And, uh, you know, if you've had a tendency, for example, to catastrophize in life, whenever there's a hiccup in your life, you see the whole world falling apart. Well, COVID is no different. And, you know, if that is a, a pattern that you have where you start to catastrophize and think the worst and then the chances are that things actually will get a little bit worse if you're so we've got to rein in those um, cognitive tendencies to um, to go into panic or go into to fear states and start to reevaluate and do some self-soothing techniques um, for example even as your mom is there she may not have had a lot of control over that circumstance and her fear is what kicked in, right? And and feeling that her life was at risk right in that well, moment. Well, no, it wasn't my mom. It was a lady that walked in. <laughs> ah, was it? Okay. Yeah, yeah, there yeah. You go. So so yeah. so it was interesting because they walked into the the clinic and she was just like going, you know, crazy and screaming and you know screaming at the, the receptionist like you know she shouldn't be here and and there was also a language barrier so it was even <laughs> more interesting. So it was just a. Uh, a perfect example of like the reaction of folks, you know, and, and I've seen it in other places, not the yeah. first time. And as you said, you know, we've seen it on TV, uh, it's viral social media, and it is just a reaction. And, you know, when it's, 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 I'm basically defending myself to your point, And that's what she's thinking at that time. I don't want to be exposed to anybody and it shouldn't, but then she is also infringing on that person's ability, but she doesn't understand what happened at that point. But it's tough. It's tough. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. You mean to cut you off. No, I mean, there's, uh, that would have been for me a fear response. And, and I can appreciate people would be scared. And what do we do when we're scared? Sometimes we get angry. Yes. Uh, sometimes we get, you know, she was in fight mode. And, you know, other times they might have just flown out of that building and said, I'm never coming back here. I mean, you know, all of it is how do we, how do we soothe ourselves um, and, and calm ourselves. And if you don't have tools to do that, and then your, your next response will be to act out. And, um, you know, do we, some people will overestimate their risk level and they will feel absolutely like something bad is going to happen to them. Um, and I do think it's important to, um, you know, be able to do a little bit of time and evaluate where is my thinking and, and what can I do to calm myself? Are there things I can control when I'm in those situations, um, you know, so that I can bring that arousal level down? If you have that tool to calm yourself, the thing, 
that meditation, mindfulness, um, exercise uh, can do is it speeds up your recovery time to a trigger. So if there's an event that is inherently um, uh, provocative or, or stressful, that you have a better ability to bring it down. And if we don't practice that, if you don't do that, the probability is that you're going to be more reactive. And so that's why you're actually wanting to exercise your brain so that as you become better, you can delay a response. You can be more contemplative in how you're going to deal with the situation rather than going back to the amygdala part of the brain. It's the emotion center and which is more primitive. And, and that's what comes out of us when we're in stress states is that primitive fight or flight response, which is probably what your mother had witnessed there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, for her, I mean, it's funny because my, another reaction one time that happened more recently is that this just to lick my mom, somebody walked in, in front of her. She ran away <laughs> because, yeah. because she's been so conditioned that all she's been watching is the news. And, and she's an older lady, so she hasn't been actually out uh, maybe like a few times this whole year. And at home, we actually try to remain a little distant from her and things like that. So just happened that someone walked by her at where she didn't expect it. And she literally jumped and ran away uh, to avoid them. Yeah. It was, it was I, just like a crazy mode. I have an aunt in Italy and she, um, she, she, of course, in Italy, you know, the situation with COVID was, was crazy, very, yeah. very extreme. I mean, they required um, documentation to permit them to leave a perimeter around their home. What a story, yeah. They couldn't leave. Uh, but, you know, her, her story is she goes into a grocery store and she's sweating profusely. Um, and, you know, imagine, I think the more vulnerable you feel, and she's a senior, the more vulnerable you feel, the more it could feel like your life is at risk and you're just going shopping. I mean, the, the things that should otherwise be um, safe, they're now thinking that they might be at risk. So I appreciate that feeling of vulnerability. And I think um, learning how to work with it and certainly helping finding ways to do what you need to do to feel as safe as possible. And you know, I think ultimately we need to all work together here, but I, I can appreciate that if you're older, senior, you have health issues, that now you're going grocery shopping and now it feels like your life could be threatened. And uh, that can be a pretty scary thing, you know, to, to think about, right? But I, I do think doing what you need to do to feel safe, I do encourage people to do that. Um, you know, uh, there might, if you look and you, we look at even in the States and here, there's been overestimation of risk and then there's underestimation of risk. And, Ultimately, we want to find that nice balance Middle between down, yeah. the both. We don't want to go into denial that there's anything happening. You know, there, there's a book called The Gift of Fear, and it's all about there's, we don't want to eliminate all feelings around it because that's, that activates us. That's what helps us stay safe and do those things. So somewhere in the middle there, I think is important for people to learn that balance so that they're not mm, completely going into these panic states, right? And you're right. There are two, two, I've seen two extremes. There are people that really don't care. And we've seen them also on the media say, it's my right. I don't want to wear a mask. I don't want to do anything. Then you have the extreme opposite side, which like if they see anything, like they wear the mask in the vehicles, you know, <laughs> it's a little, it's crazy. Like the spectrum level from one end to the other. Uh, and, and I'll give you a joke uh, again, my mom's case. Uh, yeah. So she, she's been under this medication for years. And uh, one of the side effects is coffee. Now, we all oh. know coughing <laughs> and COVID is not really a cool thing to yeah. do in the public. So now when yeah. she goes out, she's actually almost suppressing her coughing because <laughs> she's afraid that people will look at her like, <laughs> yeah, oh, it, it is it is the most insane, you know, re reaction that I've seen from her when she's like, <clears throat> she's she's trying to hold her cough. And I'm like, mom, uh, it's you okay. Know, you can cough, you have a mask on. <laughs> I totally have sympathy for that, right? Because I mean, I have asthma. Oh, and, exactly. You know, and, and and so I'm out, and I'm going, oh my gosh! Uh, <laughs> I don't People look at you like, what, what happened? Right? What's going on? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's it's um, it's a new world out there. I'm telling you, it's very challenging. You know, and I I one thing I think we don't want to make it abnormal that people are having reactions to uh, uh, these experiences. We're all kind of trying to figure out how to navigate this. I'm big on compassion and. And, you know, uh, you know, if you're struggling with it, it's, it, you know, people that are struggling more, uh, I do really think it's important to find the support resources because um, what I, I love having these conversations, I think it's important for people. Um, and I also think that sometimes, you know, it may or may not be enough. And I do think it's important if you're, um, if you're lacking that kind of support, that you need to find a way because everyone's situation is very unique. And sometimes they need to address uh, perhaps if this is, if they've had past trauma, like I've mentioned before, this can actually reignite something for them too, right? When, when, when we're worrying about safety, uh, if I could share one observation though, sure. is um, a lot of uh, PTSD clients that have um, maybe, uh, you know, avoidance is one of the symptoms of PTSD, which is uh, they avoid anything that might trigger their reactions. Some of them have loved COVID and have loved that it's legitimized their experience of staying home. Uh, it's it's helped, helped them feel that now they don't have to justify to anybody why they don't like to go to grocery stores, why they don't and they feel like this has been made for them. And I've had one person say she feels vindicated because, <laughs> because now she can stay home, but so is everybody else in the world having to stay home, right? Well, everybody's so, pretty much gone through the same thing, so. A very mixed response that, you know, to, to this experience, yeah. So just, I mean, we're almost past the time, but, but it's yeah. just so interesting. Uh, one, one question. Have you seen a surge in, in, in folks seeking help, you know, in this COVID time? And is there enough help out there? Uh, no, there's know? not enough help. I, that honestly, I, I, I've had, to date, I've had a waiting list since for already 10 years in my practice. Um, but it's, it's been um, probably, I would say, yes, there's been an increase. Uh, anxiety, uh, depression has increased for people. Um, so yes, um, do I notice a bigger wait list? Um, maybe, <laughs> maybe yes. I, I, I think right now I'm hoping, uh, you know, as far as psychologists goes, there's, uh, we need more, we need more practicing psychologists, you know, at least in BC, I don't know what the status is there in New York or, you know, as far as resources. Um, I do know here um, we need more and it's really what I feel really badly about is that um, I, I have to turn people away and and I only cross my fingers I do provide them with resources I do know government funded places offer free services to people but I also know there's huge wait lists that can be for some they wait up to a year um, so we are having challenges in that respect. And I, I do hope we get more, um, even if it's peer counseling or some kind of more resources in place for people, because sometimes it's just having that individualized attention that makes a huge difference for people. Yeah, and, and I think, I mean, it doesn't help that people are still afraid. They don't want to go anywhere. And telemedicine, I mean, it's pretty cool right now with like something like this, a consultation, somebody can really, yeah. but I think there's also price, cost and fear and, and to your yeah. point, you know, not everything, not everybody can afford services. So it's a little challenging. Well, here's a good thing. And this is what I think is really good. And I would encourage people to um, know that right now there's a lot of online clinicians. <laughs> so, and, and so literally if you want to actually see somebody you do not have to stay within if you're going to do online uh you can actually i could meet with somebody in new york if i wanted uh, so the 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 geographical limitation that existed before doesn't exist now so you know for a lot of practices that have moved their their work online i would say if you are meeting a lot of um, uh, wait lists and struggles to get in, expand your search and, and know that there's a lot more possibility now to see people across different um, areas geographically. Well, that's, that's a great advice because I, I don't think people are aware that that's possible. <laughs> it is <laughs> because, possible. 
But to your point, I mean, everything, we live in a cyber world. I mean, everything is online. You know, I mean, sure. this is a good example. You're like three hours yeah. away. We're, awesome. we're still here. So um, yeah. believe it or not, I have a show tomorrow morning and it's actually from Australia. So. <laughs> oh, there you go. Well, so, yeah. So, so, so it's really an interesting concept where today it's, you know, we live in a, a very it's accessible great. world. Yeah, and, but it just that uh, people have to, to leap forward towards it. And people are getting more savvy yes. with technology and stuff. Well, well cash cash doctor, it has been a true pleasure. Uh, you know, uh, we had a Thank very you interesting, you know, and, and informative, you know, talk here. And uh, I, I've learned a lot. I hope that our audience here uh, has actually uh, benefited from, from all the advice and, and the, the definitions of different types of things. And, uh, you know, I mean, I know you mentioned earlier something about bullying, and I think that's a whole different topic itself. <laughs> so, so I will, yeah. you know, that may be a subject for a different discussion, uh, but, but, you know, hey, there you go. Uh, but maybe we'll go we'll <laughs> to that one. Hey, Absolutely. I'll hold you to it. <laughs> but, uh, okay. but definitely, you know, definitely, you know, it, it, it's been very, uh, uh, there's, there's a lot of stuff that we've learned today. So, um, and, and, and again, much. as always said, if we can teach one or two things in one show uh, and people can walk away with a couple items, that's good enough. Yeah. And, uh, I appreciate you know, so, it. Thank you. Yeah, so thank you. Thank I know you your time is, is your time is expensive and I, and I appreciate that, that <laughs> you actually extended a little bit with me. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you and uh, so, so with that, you know, I will just uh, close the, the, the talk show today. So uh, thank you for watching the iHealth channel and listening on iHealth radio. Uh, Hurricane H here with Dr. Lake, and uh, we'll see you probably tomorrow. <laughs> ciao, ciao. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.